This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues, today in an idyllic Pacific Atoll vaporized by atomic bomb tests 70 years ago, marine life returns, genetically modified apples and potatoes raise eyebrows and a few concerns, and barcoding the millions of creatures in the tree of life for instant identification. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. In response to Earth's warming atmosphere, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reported that thermal expansion has raised sea levels by an estimated two-tenths of a meter. A subsequent scientific report based on satellite measurements announced that the annual rate of sea level rise was even higher, about 1.4 millimeters per year. A millimeter rise in ocean levels may seem tiny, but the consequences for coastal communities around the world are huge. In response to increasingly frequent urban floods across North America, Europe, and Asia, experts have been designing flood-proof cities. Step one, get rid of all the pavement or make it more porous. Recruit vegetation and microbes to filter the water as it seeps back to where it belongs. In the Netherlands, no stranger to flood, Engineers are making more room for rivers and ocean, allocating areas that can be safely, even profitably, flooded. In China, 16 sponge cities are being built, featuring dense islands of habitation surrounded by a large lake that can rise and fall depending on the weather. In response to Hurricane Sandy, urban engineers are redesigning New York City's flood defenses with coastal ecology biodiversity, urban beautification, and economic development in mind. It all comes down to resilience, making the most of wet and dry land. This is the Green Blue Show. I'm David Kattenberg. But 
Holy Bowl and Chow. Open up that window and let that bed air out. Open up the wonder boy and let that bed bed air out. I throw the hood him shout. I thought I heard Judge Fogan is saying, Give him 30 days, boy, in the market. Take him away, give him a new broom to sweep with. 30 days in the market, boy, and take him away. I thought I heard him say. I thought I heard Judge Fogan is saying 30 days in the workhouse, boy Take him away Give him 30 days in the workhouse And a new broom to sweep with Take him away I thought I Buddy Bolden's Blues, Little Brother Montgomery, Tickling the Ivories. Bikini Atoll in the Central Pacific is as desolate as a place can be. Here, between 1946 and 1958, the U.S. military carried out 23 nuclear tests, the largest, a 15-megaton thermonuclear blast codenamed Bravo in March 1954, vaporized several islands and sent a dark column of radioactive coral rocketing into the stratosphere. Not surprisingly, Little Bikini has been a lonely place ever since. Its native population, a couple hundred islanders evacuated for the tests, have never been able to return. Groundwater and local food is still contaminated with cesium and other radioisotopes, but marine organisms are amazingly resilient. Steve Palumbi, a Stanford University marine biologist, has traveled to Bikini to check out what's going on beneath the azure waters of Bikini Atoll. Let me ask you, Steve, how is it that you, that you came to, to, to start studying um, marine life in, in Bikini Atoll? How did that happen? What drew you to the place? That happened, uh, or my interest in Bikini Atoll happened uh, because of a book that uh, I was working on um, uh, about two years ago, pub- was published about two years ago, um, and uh, it's called The Extreme Life of the Sea, and I wrote it with my, my son, Tony, who's a novelist here in California. And um, One of the chapters is, is about the oldest animals living in the ocean. And, and the way the book is written is about what do we really know about these things, what's the science behind them, and then what are the stories that uh, the science tells us about how ocean life lives uh, their lives. And the coolest story about um, the oldest animals living in the ocean is actually how we know how old they are. And one of the ways we know how old they are is by following this stuff called bomb carbon, which is C14, a radioactive kind of carbon. Um, it's in all our bodies. It's in everything all over the living world. Um, 
And there's a lot more of it than there used to be because we let off these bombs. We dropped bombs on Bikini Atoll and Anawinak Atoll in, in the Marshall Islands about uh, 60, 70 years ago. So the, the chapter starts with this incredible explosion called the Bravo explosion, the biggest hydrogen bomb ever exploded in, in the atmosphere. Um, and... And then, then the book goes on to explain how that tells us anything about how, how, how old marine organisms are. But, but since then, I've been sort of fascinated by this, this place, uh, Bikini Atoll. I, I'd heard about it, of course. Um, a lot of us know about the atomic testing that we've done in the Pacific uh, over the course of decades. I've had friends who've worked in the marine realm in uh, Anahuitaka, close by Atoll. It was also part of the testing. And and this it became an intriguing kind of place to try to go visit because of the beginning of the oldest chapter, and then because of reports that had come in later, um, the year 2000 and beyond, that the marine life in Bikini Atoll had actually be, begun to recover and was beginning to thrive. Now, had had what was the impact of of the, of the original testing? Uh, program I went from 1946 to 1957. There were like six, 67 devices. Actually, I think 23 of them were exploded at Bikini. What impact right. did that? What impact did that have on marine life in the atoll? Well, um, I mean, I imagine a whole lot of a whole lot of <laughs> it was it was pretty much devastated. Atomic bombs have that tendency. Yeah. So the 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 marine life in the atoll was was. Uh, devastated. Uh, some of it was vaporized by these blasts when we went there. Honestly, um, you'd be snorkeling around or diving and you, you, you look and you see this kind of crack and that's fine because reef frameworks often get cracked, but then the crack goes on and on and on in a completely straight line for, for hundreds and hundreds of yards and you realize that this is, this is where the whole reef just buckled because of an explosion. Or you can go and go diving in a hydrogen bomb crater. It's 160 feet deep. Uh, it's filled with fine sediment that's like talcum powder. And, of course, when that bomb went off, nothing anywhere close to it could have survived even an instant. There, were, there was a huge gouge of reef that was just vaporized and thrown into the atmosphere. And you could um, imagine that the bottom of the atoll was completely covered in debris. Debris, and then fallout. Uh, one of the interesting little historical facts that comes along with this kind of work is you, re- you discover that the word, the word fallout didn't exist before these tests. Um, it was coined just to describe this, this rain of radioactive ash that was falling out of the atmosphere. That fallout hit, hit all the islands, hit, hit the lagoon, filtered down, and then covered the bottom with, with radioactive um, radioactive ash. So, so the marine life was completely and utterly devastated. Now, when, when did you first g- g- dive with your colleagues in Bikini Atoll? When was that? And tell me what you found. We were in Bikini Atoll in May of 2016, and um, snorkeling uh, around uh, the shallow islands, uh, diving in the hydrogen bomb crater, and what what we found was uh, marine life trying trying to come back. 
um, actually the corals around Bikini Island itself um, were beginning to thrive. There were a lot of species. They were pretty big. The water quality wasn't as high as I would have guessed it was. It should be, given that there's not very many people living in Bikini Atoll. Um, but uh, we found those. Uh, we used a paper um, written by a woman named Zoe um, Richards, whose work showed us kind of a map of where we would find those um, corals in Bikini Atoll if we went looking. And that, um, that helped us um, zone in on a, a couple of the reef formations that um, we had been able to find, and then we knew because she had seen them in the early 2000s that they, they were there um, that whole time. So you found an amazing reef formation. Tell me more about the, just the diversity of life that you found. Lots of fish, lots of reef organisms. Run through some of these for me. Well, and you you've know, been to uh, other places. You've dived in other places. Uh, how, how did it, it all compare to the diversity you find in other places that are relatively pristine? Well, it didn't compare very well. I mean, obviously, the... Um, the things that have come back, it, it's kind of one of those glass half full, glass half empty situations. The fact that there's anything there at all is just completely amazing. Uh, once you find it and you realize it's actually doing pretty well, colonies seem to be growing well, they're, they're big, um, and you're focusing in on the, the places where you find um, abundant life, and finding it at all is amazing. Uh, then you take a step back and you realize, well, you found a scattered set of corals around the hydrogen bomb crater. It's amazing there's corals there at all. Um, but it's nowhere near like the kind of life you would imagine on a, on a pristine atoll lagoon that hadn't been wiped out by atomic bombs. So you're dealing, having to deal with sort of a different set of, of expectations. If it was a normal atoll, you'd be horrified by what you saw. Um, and the fact that it was a, a, an atoll that you would kind of expect to be completely dead means that what you do find coming back is kind of a really amazing example of the resilience of, of the ocean. Is it perfect? Is it back to where it was before? No, of course not. But um, what we did find um, was an encouraging sign that the ocean can push back. Now, what impact does, does the ambient radiation, and I'm wondering how much ambient radiation there is actually still there, but uh, what impact has that radiation had, apparently, on, on the organisms that you see living there? I know you've focused specifically on coconut crabs. Right, and um, our first sort of, sort of answer to that is that there is still ambient radiation there. There is. Uh, there is. If you... Uh, you wander around the Bikini Island with a with a radiation meter, like I did. Uh, you can hone in on where the signal starts to to, to climb. And um, when I did that, uh, wandering sort of through the the coconut tree forest there, uh, where you're led to is the nearest freshwater well, because that's where the radiation levels are are the highest. And that's one of the biggest problems with anybody who would like to go back to Bikini Island. So one um, cannot drink that fresh water? 
one should not drink that fresh water exactly because it's got cesium-137 in it and a whole set of other radionuclides um, that are so common in the groundwater that every plant growing there is pulling that up into its tissues. So not only can you not drink the water there, but you can't farm there either because of the ambient radiation that's still in the soil. So the pandanus, the, 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 the coconuts and the pandanus and the breadfruit and stuff that grows there is, is also contaminated. It's also contaminated. Um, and then that gets us to the coconut crabs because coconut crabs make their living out of eating those fruits. They're, they're then eating the most radioactive uh, things on the, on the island and they themselves are continuously radioactive. That became one of the fo- focal points of our research there to just ask what's the, what is the result of, of chronic exposure to these uh, radioactivity levels. Um, we don't really have a whole lot of evidence about that. Luckily, we don't have very much evidence about that from people since people haven't, spend, haven't spent decades living there uh, on those, eating those plants. Um, but these coconut crabs did, and they can basically, they're, they, they're pretty long-lived organisms, 20 or 30 or 40 years. So uh, that, that became part of the, the sort of focal uh, mission for this research was to say, can we say anything about how the radiation levels are affecting coconut crabs? Yeah, do the um, coconut crabs look any different? They, you know, we have looked very carefully, and they don't look very different. Um, and um, that that research is still going on. Um, the outward appearance does not does not seem to indicate any any harm. I mean, all, uh, it could be any individuals that had such harm and had such uh, such appearances were you know wiped out of the population before they got very old. Um, so we basically are proposing to look at the the genetics of these animals by looking through their genomes. That work hasn't been done yet. Uh, we have the samples that we brought from Bikini. So uh, the idea but, is, to, is to do do a, a genomic study and see what mutations are in there. That's exactly exactly right. That's that's the idea. But the meat the meat is radioactive. The meat is radioactive, and those are samples that have been collected and analyzed by the Department of Energy for decades. And radiation is slowly declining as as the the normal have lives of these radioactive nucleotides play out. But um, there's still a there's still uh, got radiac radiation in them that is well above um, anything you'd expect. And the reef organisms, Steve, tell me about the reef organisms. Do, do, do you see strange mutations? Do they, do they look bizarre? Um, is there anything that you see on these things, uh, you know, outward appearance that would suggest that they've been living in a radioactive reef? No, 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 David, they don't. They, they look just fine. Um, they're, they're a little bit different than you might see in other parts of the Pacific, but they're on an isolated Marshall Island atoll, and they could just look a little bit different because that's the way they usually are. Um, but the, um, you know, above the level of the corals, fish schools and fish swarms and sharks and uh, huge rays are all a pretty common part of what's, uh, what you can see in the, in the, um, in the lagoon. Uh, and outside the lagoon, if you if you dive on the outside edge of the atoll, 
what you're doing is diving in water that is basically ocean water washed by the entire Pacific that's sort of uh, swooping by. And there you're back into just a stunningly beautiful, diverse, and looked like productive area. Um, that is one co- comparison I would make um, between Bikini Atoll and any other place that looks just fine. Uh, the lagoon looks a little bit shabby still, but the outside uh, of the walls of the atoll are stunningly gorgeous. Uh, you'd imagine that, like reef reef building organisms that take you know, geez, decades to to, to form, um, uh, incorporating materials from their environment. Of course, you know, calcium and carbonate and all that stuff, but that you'd find strange strange mutations in, in their genomes. Mm-hmm. Any plans to study that? Um, we have plans to study the strange mutations, if you will, from the genomes of as many organisms as we, as we can get good samples from. Um, it turns out that the Smithsonian Institution um, sent uh, an expedition there before the first bombs went off. And that set of samples still exists in storage in Washington, D.C. Uh, that includes some coconut crabs. It includes some of the corals that we've been working on and a, and a wealth, wealth of other um, organisms, too. So we will have a before and after comparison that we can do on a, on a set of different species. Um, and that, that's one of the things we hope to do. We hope to return there and do a parallel collection of the old and the new um, species of new specimens, and then um, directly compare them. I guess on one level, you know, Bikini Atoll is is a place that people don't visit, and I, I guess it's not terribly surprising that there would be a considerable biological diversity, marine diversity there, just exactly because it's been untouched. You 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 don't have people going there, and so uh, it's. Uh, but of course, it's it's all regenerating itself from from the events of the '40s and '50s when everything was wiped out. But uh, right, that is sort of the the the, the focus on this particular place. It um, was the site of the most destructive thing we have ever done to the ocean, and in a weird way, that legacy, that radioactive kind of shroud that's sitting on top of it. Uh, is a is a little bit of a protective shroud at this point. Um, people don't go there. Uh, the population of Bikini Islanders who were who were forced to evacuate in the 1940s um, tried to go back uh, decades later, um, but were faced with the problem of not being able to drink the water, not being able to farm, not being able to to eat the fish there. Um, they they really couldn't live their lives there. And uh, and then they had to they had to depart again. So um, this sort of legacy of radiation and its effect on the reefs has also got a huge legacy of a, of a, of its effect on people themselves. Um, and uh, they are, I think, very justifiably wondering what it is they can what it is they can do with their their homeland, this 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 atoll, um, because there's few people there, then you see more sharks than usual. You see more big fish. You see more more rays. Um, The water quality on the outside is superb. Um, 
and and yet there was a group uh, that tried to set up a dive operation there, uh, a dive resort, because the lagoon is littered in the middle of it with the ships that were in the lagoon when the bombs went off. They were towed in there to see what atomic weapons would do to to big ships. Of course, what it does to them is sink them. And now they're on the bottom, and they have formed a, a nice basis for a dive industry there. So there's this is it's just a funny place in all these ways. There there's this deep history of people and their lives there for thousands of years. There's this trauma of their forced evacuation. There's this radiation that's been there now, and then the ocean and its ocean life dealing with it and recovering in some cases and in uh, and not in others. What is there to be learned, Steve Palumbi, from uh, what you've discovered about uh, prognosis for reefs uh, elsewhere in the world that are being severely damaged by climate change, such as those uh, part of the Great Barrier Reef that have been apparently decimated? What hopes do we have for restoring those reefs and seeing those come about, return uh, uh, from the, the injuries they've suffered based on what you've learned about the recovery, partial recovery of, of, of Bikini Atoll? So, David, I think that's an excellent question about the, the prognosis for the future, given this. Um, and I think one of the lessons for Bikini Atoll and is, is that the ocean can recover. Um, this is the most devastating thing we've ever done to the ocean, and then there's parts of it that, that are coming back. Um, there, are, there are corals that are the size of, of small cars there. Um, there's fish schools. There's big sharks and, and rays. Um, so we see this in other parts of the ocean when, when humans generate a problem uh, and, it, and it affects marine life, and then we stop generating that problem, then uh, marine life comes back. It's hugely productive, and it's hugely available there to, to essentially be our partner in recovering ocean ecosystems. Uh, we see it in marine parks all over the world. We see it when we reduce fishing. We see it when we reduce sediment loads or pollution. Um, the ocean is, is still there to come back. That's a great message, and I think it's very encouraging. Bikini Atoll is, is probably the strongest example of that because we did so much damage there. Um, but at the same time, if you don't solve those problems, then things don't come back, and there are recurrent problems that you have to deal with. The, the radiation there in, in Bikini Atoll is not gone. It's still, it's still there. And, and parts of the reef have not come back. This big hole that is the hydrogen bomb crater has not filled in with corals in the last 50 or 60 or 70 years. Um, so even though this energy of the ocean and ocean life is there, this productivity that could work for us to bring ocean ecosystems back, we still have to do the job of, of making it possible for them, for them to do this. And, and this is where climate change comes in. Um, climate change is going to devastate the ocean's ecosystems. It's already started. You can see that in coral bleaching all over the world, the migration of fish stocks, things are happening. Um, if we don't change their trajectory in a century or so, the ocean's function will be dramatically different than it is now. Um, but we could stop. We could change how we are letting climate change run away with the oceans. Um, we can reduce emissions and get ourselves back on track. And when we do that, I think the ocean will be there uh, to help us and regrow, but only if we do it now. Steve Palumbi, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Oh, thank you so much for, for the opportunity. Steve Palumbi is a marine biologist based at Hopkins Marine Station at Stanford University in Monterey, California. The first two American nuclear tests at Bikini Atoll in the spring of 1946 were codenamed Operation Crossroads. This is Robert Johnson, Crossroad Blues. genetically modified apple that doesn't turn brown when exposed to air went on the market in the U.S. earlier this year. The Arctic Apple, the creation of British Columbia company Okanagan Specialty Fruits, has yet to be approved for sale in Canada. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency and Health Canada have approved three varieties of GMO potatoes for cultivation and sale. I spoke about these developments with Lucy Sharrett, coordinator of the Canadian Biotechnology Action Network. The Apple makes use of RNA, RNAi technology. Um, and what is that? Well, it's been genetically engineered to, uh, to turn off um, the function of browning. It's, it's a non-browning apple. Um, the enzyme that uh, creates the browning in the apple so that when you cut the apple, it does not brown. So the, the, the trait is this non-browning. It's a superficial uh, 
you know, consumer trait, if you will, that's how it's been advertised, is now we have a more convenient apple that a consumer can slice, it won't turn brown, so you can keep it around and not have to finish your apple in a day or 15 days, as it turns out. So the, the market that's been uh, developed for this apple or the market that's been sold is this idea of the sliced apple uh, in a bag, for example. That's, it would seem, the test market for this apple. So, yeah, as opposed to the herbicide-tolerant crops that dominate the landscape, we have now this uh, tiny test market of an apple that does not brown. Um, and the potato is, has a similar trait uh, to not bruise, turn brown, uh, in addition to producing less acrylamide at high temperature frying. And acrylamide is associated with, uh, you know, carcinogen. So, yeah, so it's... A, the, the company says, you know, there's a health benefit here with less acrylamide when you're eating these fried potatoes. Uh, what's the corporate, two different corporations involved in genetically engineering the apple and the potato? Yeah, the apple and potato are somewhat unique in that they come from smaller companies that are, you know, being, well, smaller companies. They're not Monsanto. It's uh, Simplot is a, is a company that's bringing forward the potato. The apple comes from, you know, a small company that's since been bought up by Intrexon, which is... It also now bought the GM fish and uh, the GM mosquito. So these are sort of outlying technologies that now have uh, been approved and we'll see how, they, how, mu how much of them actually get planted, if they come to market, uh, where, and ultimately who ends up owning the technology. And are there any supermarkets that have, uh, do you have any information on supermarkets in Canada that have committed to, to, to actually marketing these products? The answer is more which supermarkets have committed to keeping them off the shelves. And that's an ongoing request from many consumers is consumers want to be able to walk into the grocery store, look at the produce section and not have to worry that there's a genetically engineered fruit or vegetable there. Which and is and I guess the big question is would they be labeled as such? Well, and they won't be except that they won't be labeled genetically engineered, products of genetic engineering, but the companies have both said they will identify their products with their corporate logos, corporate uh, trademark names. So so the genetically engineered apple has a little tiny corporate logo on the sticker that a consumer could peer at and maybe find. And similarly, the potato has a trademark name that you could, if you are aware of that trademark name, you could identify that potentially this is the genetically modified potato in a bag with that name on it. So they're not labeled. They're not labeled by government. They're not labeled clearly for consumers. But the, the companies are saying there's a measure of transparency. We would disagree. Have these products been been tested at all uh, to, to find out what their what their nutritional content is, or, or you know whether or not they There's, uh, there are health concerns associated with these? Like all genetically engineered products, there's a nutritional profile that's provided from the companies to Health Canada. Health Canada assesses corporate information. There may or may not be any actual data and testing that's done and as Canadians we don't have access to the corporate information that's provided to Health Canada for safety assessments. Um, there's a summary of the safety decisions that were made by Health Canada. According to Health Canada they have the same nutritional profile, um, they're safe to eat, they're equivalent to uh, non-genetically modified apples and potatoes in that respect but we know for example there was no uh, animal feed testing done 
by the company that produced the GM Apple. Um, so the question of how many, if any, tests were done um, on various food safety questions, certainly long-term testing, we don't know the exact answer, um, generally speaking. And from what we learn, well, there's no long-term testing, certainly. So can Canadians are in the dark. Uh, Health Canada knows what they looked at from the companies. And I guess the other very, very large concern that, that you have is just the lack of democracy. The major concern that we have is the lack of democracy. Certainly these new technologies are have been introduced into the food system without a democratic debate. At every step in the regulatory process, there's missing transparency, which is also about the missing consultations, the missing democratic discussion. In as, in as far as even on the grocery store shelf, there's no labeling. But if we move back through the process itself, including to the, the introduction of this technology into the food system, yeah, there's no democracy here on this question of genetic engineering. Do we want it? Do we need it? And I guess there's an underlying idea here that the food that we find on shelves is in a certain sense, it's kind of like the shared property of, of humanity. And once products like this end up on shelves, they, they are really, they, they're the property of, uh, I mean, the actual genetic code is the property of a corporation. Yeah, food, ke food keeps us alive. Food has been uh, the product of farmer innovation over millennia, and now it's the patented product of laboratories that ends up on grocery store shelves without people knowing where it is, where it came from. Farmers don't have control over it. So certainly there is, I think a major concern that the food that we need to survive um, and the food that also is produced in our environment that we all depend on, that people don't have the same control over that food that they need and want. And uh, certainly that is the major question into the future is who controls this technology and then who controls the food that's the product of that technology. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lucy Sharrett is the coordinator of the Canadian Biotechnology Action Network. Learn more about GMO apples, potatoes, and other food products at greenplanetmonitor.net. I don't want no wife from Roberts Falls don't want no wife from Robert's Falls The only dish she can cook is fried fish Don't want no wife from Robert's Falls Chicken is nice, chicken is nice Chicken is nice with palm butter and rice Don't want no wife from Cape Palmas. Don't want no wife from Cape Palmas. If I move around, she'll put me in the ground. I don't want no wife from Cape Palmas. Chicken is nice. Chicken is nice. Chicken is nice with palm butter and rice. Don't want no wife 
from Sino. Don't want no wife from Sino. If I go out at night, she'll challenge me to a fight. Don't want no wife from Sino. Chicken is nice. Chicken is nice. Chicken is nice with palm butter and rice. I don't want no wife from Monrovia. Don't want no wife from Monrovia. When my money gets low, to another she'll go. Don't want no wife from Monrovia. Chicken is nice. Chicken is nice. Chicken is nice with palm butter and rice. That's Dave Van Ronk. Chicken is nice. If genetically modified apples and potatoes raise eyebrows, it's worth recalling those days many years ago when barcodes first appeared on consumer products and barcode scanners at checkout counters. Now, hundreds of thousands of species have been assigned barcodes of a completely different sort. The Barcode of Life Project is based at the Biodiversity Institute of Ontario in Guelph. I spoke with senior researcher Dirk Steinke. What is a DNA barcode? Well, a DNA barcode is a small fragment of DNA. And this small fragment of DNA is taken always from the the same region in an organism. We're trying to, for example, if we look at animals, there's a particular region in the DNA, in the mitochondrial DNA, where we're interested in. That's one which we can technically relatively easy obtain so that we can read it out. And that's what our laboratory is is, um, designed for. And this small fragment of DNA is characteristic for a species. And it's slightly different in another species, and so on and so forth, which allows you later on, if you probably find a remaining part of something, for example, you go out in the field and you find a butterfly wing, but you don't know what it belongs to because it's all that's left of the animal, you could actually take the DNA out of that, so you would extract it, read it, and you look for this particular fragment we defined, you would be able then later on to go back to our database where we collected all this information and try to match it. So the idea is you try to identify a species based on DNA. And so this is mitochondrial DNA? This is mitochondrial DNA in this case, at least for animals, because it's easier to obtain. And in mitochondrial DNA, you also have the advantage of higher copy numbers, meaning you have the same fragment over and over again. So it makes it, again, much easier to technically really obtain the fragment. And so regardless of the species that you're barcoding, that little segment of the mitochondrial DNA, you're always looking for that same little bit. Yeah. For, for all animals, we're looking for the same little bit. Um, it's a, a region that is part of a, of a bigger one that codes that for a particular protein. And it's called cytochrome oxidase 1, but that's a mouthful, so we usually call it, call it CO1. And it's highly conserved. It's highly conserved. It's very essential for the survival and the energy production in a mitochondrial and the survival of the organism. If this would be somehow not present, the organism wouldn't be able to survive. And so so up and down the evolutionary ladder, at least in the animal kingdom, that, that, that one little bit is highly... It's always there, but it varies a little bit. It varies a little bit. 
um, it varies enough so that we can actually go in there, read it out, and we find enough differences between two versions from two different species. So you can actually compare the region in one organism, let's say it's a single-cell organism, with something that is from a multicellular organism like a human or an elephant. So you not only have this tool that is very practical, you can identify species using DNA, but you can also look at this particular region we've chosen and see how does that change between these different organisms and their different life history. Now, like you're saying that you can use this to identify individual organisms within the animal kingdom. How about plants? How about fungi? Well, the plants gave us a very clear signal right at the get-go because when you look at the same region in plants, you will find no difference at all between all those species. In case of plants, it obviously is so conserved that it doesn't allow any really big changes. So what you do, you're trying to find it, as I described for other um, fish, for example, you look for a different region. So what we did is actually shifting from the mitochondria to another organelle that's very particular in plants, and it has the same phenomenon. It has its own DNA. It brings with it... The chloroplast. The chloroplast, exactly. And there are two regions the people had to choose. One wasn't enough. It wasn't containing enough information. So they picked two of those, and both of them are the now accepted plant barcodes. So they're now using these two different markers, different regions of it. They read out and do the same thing as they did with animals. And then, as for example, for the fungi, we had to leave these two organelles because both of them don't work for fungi for a lot of technical difficulties for the same reasons of the others might have not worked. And now we shifted to the nucleus. And then they picked a, a gene region that is actually not coding for any protein. It's what they call a spacer, though that's a, a stretch of DNA between two coding areas, uh, which you can still find because it's highly conserved as well. This is in fungi. That's in fungi, and they call that ITS, so it's the internal transcribed spacer, and they use that for fungi. And the plant people have now discovered that the same region actually works for some plants much better than the other two they had. So they've sort of started sharing the ideas. Um, but you can see that it one region doesn't work for all life on, on the planet. However, for very major groups, you can actually do it. So you can pick up most animals and use this CO1, cytochrome oxidase 1, as the barcode. For the plants, you use one or two chloroplast things. They're called MATK and RBCL. And for the fungi, you, you use ITS. And the communities of researchers have agreed on those. So they actually sat down and decided, okay, these are the best ones. They went through a, a number of different markers just to see which one performs best. And they picked the best ones. And now internationally, they know when somebody says, I want to use a DNA barcode for an animal, they use exactly the same region of DNA. They know this is an agreed-upon position. We're going to use that in our lab. Before you actually are able to use it as a tool for something you want to determine, you have to build a big reference library. A library of all life that describes its name and a bit where it was, was taken from. But then in addition to that, you need the DNA information that goes into that as well. So the first order of business was to build a database that is hosted here in Guelph in the, in the Institute. It's called Barcode of Life Data Systems or short bold. And that's a publicly available database. So everybody who has the ability to sequence some DNA could actually query the database. And it is now home of 4.5 million records 
representing 550,000 species. So how does it work? I mean, some people send, uh, send barcodes that they've already established. They send them here to be incorporated into the database. Uh, uh, other people just send you biological samples yep. and you do, the, you do the sequencing? Yeah, we do the sequencing. So, well, normally either we collect our, our own organisms. So we went out here in the field. We worked a lot with Canada's national parks and collected, focused a lot of insects on insects or let's say arthropods, so insects, spiders, and all the like, everything that has probably more than four legs. Um, the reason why we were doing that is it's relatively easy to obtain, let's say, the big ones, the mammals, the vertebrates in general, because people have been doing research. The museums are full of them. So you can actually obtain tissue that's properly identified. It gives you a lot of information where it was obtained and everything else. So that's the low-hanging fruits of our work. But then if you go further and if you look at the true diversity of this country and the unknown one, because when we started with arthropod work, there was just one number floating around. People had been discussing there's probably 12,000 arthropods in Canada people haven't described or discovered yet. That was the rough number. Now, after doing our work and just with one compartment, and that would mean flying insects and alike, we know this number is too low because we're already over that. But how many? We, would pr we predict that the total number will rise 25,000 insects. insects alone. And we have not yet started looking into soil life. We just focused on everything terrestrial, so on the ground and above, in terms of insects. And in terms, well, let's say arthropods, that's a more general term because it includes spiders and millipedes and all that. So, But if you go and dig into the soil, this is a big unknown. Although it's so important, humanity and, and, and science doesn't have a clear grip on how much life is there and how diverse it is. Although it's so important for agriculture, for the health of any kind of terrestrial-based ecosystem. So that'll be the next but if you do a library, you have to start at some point and just focus on that and make sure you sort of finish it and then you move on to the next. Um, so the next would be we have to dig a lot of holes. <laughs> what are the problems that, that biologists, health practitioners, people who work in development, agriculture, the whole range of challenges that, that people face around the world that uh, where barcodes would be useful, be able to say that this is this species? Well, there's a lot. Um, it's hard to... St well, I can only pick a few examples or start with one. One, number one is forensics, the criminal forensics guys. And that relates not only to the forensic guys, in, in, maybe also in medicine f to some extent. If people wanted to determine anything, they were usually relying on adult insects. For example, time of death, if you find a corpse and you don't know when, when, when it was actually brought there, died there. You might have seen CSI and the people were determining, yeah, there's this and this insect on that. But what you usually find is not the insect itself, the adult insect. You find a maggot or you find a larvae. Identifying species based on larvae is next to impossible, especially with insects or even eggs that were laid there. So what they have to do, and in many cases they do, they pick them out and they let them, they rear them until they're adults and they hatch and then they can make the determination if they're lucky. And so this is larvae on, on dead bodies? Yeah, I'm larvae on dead bodies. Um, larvae, um, there's a couple of larvae that actually attack humans. They go under the skin and eat through that. We had that problem once or twice with where the medical examiner pulled that out, but they didn't know what kind of species that was, and they didn't know where it was contracted. 
That's an interesting question. Somebody spending a holiday there, you would think, yeah, probably they got it somewhere in an exotic country, but maybe not. You want to determine that, but you cannot do that based on in, um, juvenile individuals. So you have to wait until they're hatched. If you're lucky, because not always can you mimic in a laboratory the ideal conditions that a larvae hatches, and then you're still left with the question, what was that? But if you have built a reference library, even based on adult flies in this case, and you pick a maggot, you can now sequence the DNA of the maggot and match it to the adult one without having to wait and without yeah, waiting that your luck works and you actually can rear it. So this is one element where you can actually assign so far unknown young forms, eggs, larvae to their species name because that wasn't possible before. And this is also used a lot in, when you deal with agricultural pests. But I mean, <clears throat> locally in places around the world where uh, technology isn't perhaps as advanced, how would somebody in, in, in a developing world country go about trying to identify species that for which a barcode actually exists? They have several ways. You would be surprised how much these first steps of the sequencing are already spread. And there is a movement that currently tries to make them more accessible to everyone, not only to developing countries, but to every citizen, essentially. So they're starting to build little, um, yeah, I would say, small suitcase-sized laboratories that people can use everywhere. They can even carry them in the field, so not having to rely on an institute like this with big facilities. No, you have a little yeah, suitcase you carry with you. You take your sample, throw it in there, and everything is done in that little box. Um, and, and more and more of those technologies are done. There's a last step that is usually the most technically advanced one but what a lot of people have been doing they've worked through the first laboratory procedures and then they ship it off to companies that do the rest and there's one huge company in korea that has actually mailboxes all over the place so that people can conveniently send their prepared sample to them and they will give them the answer probably within a week well, let's get back to some of the other uses of, of dna barcoding and identifying species like identifying uh, you know, what kind of fish is this in the supermarket? Yep. Uh, or, or, or the presence of horse meat. You know, or they say this, this, is, uh, this is salmon, but it's Afro-Pacific salmon. It's actually not. Yeah, that, that's a funny thing that came up, what was it, 2009, and it was started with two kids that were in grade 11 in New York City. And they were looking for a semester project. And one of the two students, her father was actually involved in some of the barcoding work we did on birds. So he knew about the methodology and he told his daughter, hey, why don't you do that? Um, come up with something. And then he asked us where we have a lot of information already at hand, so where they can use this library we're building. And the idea was fish. So what they did, they went to their favorite sushi stores in New York City and cut a little piece off of the fish. They got served and took a note of what the uh, menu said which species it supposedly is. And then they sh sent their samples to us and we did the sequencing and the DNA barcoding and checked it with what's on our database. And the message back was, yeah, in 40% of what you had there, the label was essentially wrong. So people have been selling a species that it wasn't. And unfortunately, if you do that over and over again, and we did, we followed up on that at different places, not only sushi restaurants, other restaurants, supermarkets. It's always around one-third was mislabeled, and it still is in some areas. Uh, horse meat. <laughs> 
Similar case, barcoding was used first in Ireland to check on a couple, they do regular spot checks on processed meat products. So we're talking about spaghetti sauces, lasagnas, all the frozen products that contain beef. beef. They supposedly contain beef, I should say, because in that case, they unearthed that it was not only beef, but also horse. Where does technology stand at the moment, Dirk, um, uh, regarding like miniaturization of, of DNA barcoding readers? Because uh, eventually people will be able to carry handheld devices mm -hmm. like the size of this. And well, that's the dream, having a Star Trek tricorder for sure, um, which just tells you what species it is by holding it in your hand. Miniaturization came a long way. I shouldn't say it's a, it's a handheld barcoder. We now have hand, well, cell phone-sized devices that can g sequence entire genomes. So you're not only looking at a particular fragment, but people are more interested probably in, in determining the entire genome of a person or of an organism. But these, these devices can be easily reshaped or reformed or reused, repurposed for DNA barcoding. It's not a big deal. So you take a little handheld device and you put a little bit of the sample into the device. How, how does that work? Well, what it comes, you have a, yeah, as I said, it's not larger than a, um, than a cell phone. It comes with a couple of liquids. Um, what you do is then you take your tissue, whatever you obtained, might be an insect leg, might be a piece of, of flesh, whatever you, you want to do. You have to go through the certain, I think the first stage is just the DNA extraction, a very quick one. So you can do that in a couple of minutes using these little liquids, and then you end up with a mixture that contains the DNA, and that's then brought onto the device. There's a little opening on the device where you put a few drops of the, the mixed liquid of tissue and the chemicals will go on. And then you have to wait. That's a disadvantage of these instruments right now, but they're new, is that you have to wait up to, what, 24 hours before you have your results. So it's not immediate as you would love to. I could very well imagine this kind of device as a plug-in or an add-on to a, a um, smartphone. You just plug it in there, it does the laboratory part, but the computer in the phone does the rest, which is take this unknown sequence, connect to a database like ours, query the database, get the species name back, and display it on the phone. That would be the future. So then you sit in the restaurant, you order your fish meal, you take a little sample, you... If it's really fast, you don't have to wait very long, and then you can probably call the waiter because you've discovered it's not the right species. So that's, I don't think it's very far away. Dirk Steinke is Senior Researcher and Director for Education and Outreach at the Biodiversity Institute of Ontario in Guelph. And that's it for today's edition of The Green Blue Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio. Subscribe to our podcast at www.greenplanetmonitor.net. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you next time. Thank you.